Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig, one of the pastors here. And we, of course, in our culture have been having lots of conversations around race. And one thing that keeps coming up is assimilation. And I find it very, very fascinating the way that we talk about this idea of assimilation. What does it mean to enter into a different culture? It comes up around immigration, around immigration quotas. It comes up around what does it mean to call America a melting pot? How should we understand that? How should we try to integrate into uh, something like a melting pot? Does that mean all of our differences get wiped away? Or what exactly does that mean? And that, that whole conversation obviously is very politically charged. But also, I think it's very fascinating because it, it gives us glimpses into what is cultural and what is not. I remember a uh, discussion I was a part of. I was in Germany for a couple months, and there's a class I was in with people from all over Europe. And one of the questions, just a benign question, was asked, when should someone move out of their parents' house? And it was amazing to see that all of the folks from Southern Europe, so Spain and Italy, said, oh, whenever, I mean, maybe once they get married. But even once they get married, maybe they're not necessarily going to move out of their house. Because those cultures were much more open to uh, just a larger family culture, much more hospitable. It was just part of Italians and Spanish uh, lives. But for those in Northern Europe or America, it was clear that if you have to go back into your parents' house after college, you're a loser, and you're lazy, and you got to try to get out of there uh, as soon as you can. And they did not understand each other because they had different values of what it meant to be independent, what it meant to be a family. That is just a benign example of when cultures collide or when they at least get um, exposed for being debatable. And Christians should be very used to this. This should be a typical kind of conversation Christians should have because the Bible and church history is filled with the exact same question for our faith. Getting to deeper questions about what do we treasure, what do we prioritize, how do we exactly live in the world, in our culture? It's much deeper than how do we dress, or how do we talk, or what food do we eat. It's a question of who is your Lord, where is your homeland, and things like that. And with that thought, I want us to enter into the book of Daniel. Let's pray. God, we do praise you. We praise you for this day, the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection. And we pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom into these big questions, but not just wisdom. We pray also for soft hearts that you would give us receptivity and humility to know when we are making other lords in your place. God, help us to hear your word. May your spirit be powerful. May you 
Convict us of our sin. May you comfort us with the amazingly good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jerry and I are going to be starting a series when we preach through the book of Daniel. And this is the first one, so we're just going to be looking at the first eight verses. And I'm excited. Maybe you're frightened, and that's okay too. I'm a little frightened. Daniel is a pretty unique book. If you don't know anything about it, it's hard to categorize because it has the first half is basically historical narrative, and the second half is apocalyptic visions. And the book of Revelation, in many ways, is a kind of commentary on those apocalyptic visions in the second half of Daniel. It's written in two different languages. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It's got a huge chunk in the middle written in Aramaic, which is like a Hebrew dialect. It's complicated in its relationship to the empire, to the Babylonian empire, because there are times where it seems like the Hebrews are flourishing, and then there are other times where they're clearly not, and they're being thrown into prison, and then other exciting places like a lion's den and a furnace. The... The biggest thing I want us to realize before we jump into the specifics of the passage, although it comes right out in the passage, is the context of the book of Daniel, and the context is one of exile. I am convinced, and and Jerry and I both are convinced, that it was written around the 6th century B.C., right around the time of the events that it is describing, and that was a time of exile for Israel, of catastrophe of being thrown out of the promised land. And I want us in several different ways to try to get into that mindset. What does it mean that they were thrown into exile? Maybe some of you remember at the start of COVID when we were remembering the Lord's Supper, we actually were quoting from Psalm 137 which is a psalm of exile. It reads like this, By the waters of Babylon, so there in Babylon morning, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, or Israel. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. You get a glimpse there into what they were experiencing in exile. And so it's important for us to just remember the broad macro history of Israel, you have Abraham being called out out of of his homeland. He's promised this uh, incredible blessing. His generations will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. They are in Egypt eventually. They are redeemed out of Egypt. They are wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And then they finally reach the promised land. But in the wilderness... Then, after they are exiled from Israel back into the wilderness, the wilderness and exile become almost synonymous for strife, for punishment, for God's chastening 
And so I want us to kind of get used to that word exile. Sometimes commentators will uh, make it synonymous with the world, the way we talk about being in the world. It is kind of synonymous, but exile, I think, is better because it reminds us that it's a negative term. So the first way I want us to think about this is first take a side. We're going to talk about taking a side and then taking stock and then taking caution and then finally taking heart. But taking a side is where I want us to start because there are two competing stories when it comes to Israel's exile right here in the start of the book of Daniel. There are two competing stories of what is really going on. The first one is one that was very, very uh, understandable in the ancient world. You see it in ancient Near East, you see it in Rome time, ancient Greek time, was that wars and battles were battles not just between countries and militaries, they were battles between gods. And if you won, that meant your god was stronger than the god you were fighting against. And Nebuchadnezzar is assuming that when he defeats Israel. So, in verse 1, we read very plainly that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And that would mean Nebuchadnezzar's god, Bel, or, and Marduk, and, and the pantheon of gods that they would have worshipped, was stronger than Yahweh, and so we see this basic sort of empire-building instinct of bringing in all the things that meant Yahweh wasn't a powerful God into Babylon. So they bring in items from the temple in Jerusalem. They, he, he calls out these elites that are part of the Hebrews. Not every single Israelite got exiled. They left the poor and the ones that were worldly less important. They kind of left them in Israel, not really caring what they, were, what they would do. But they wanted the elites because they, that's how you influence a culture. Right? So they take Daniel and his three friends. Talks about education. Nebuchadnezzar wants them educated according to the Babylonian system. Because again, he is taking over their culture. It's a sign of dominance. The food, the source, probably a source of sustenance. We'll talk more about that when we come to the rest of the chapter. But he wants them eating his food, drinking his wine. All of that would have been offered up to his gods. And then he changes their names. And that too, I think, can get lost on us. Their names, though, all four of their names in Hebrew were names that honored God. Daniel, the E-L at the end, is honoring the generic name of God. God is my judge, is what Daniel means. Michael, Michael, is honoring God. The other, the, what are the other names? Hananiah and Azariah, just like Jeremiah and Isaiah and even Hallelujah. The Yah is short for Yahweh. It's honoring Yahweh as God. And so he changes their names from the Hebrew that would have been honoring to Yahweh, Israel's God, to these four other names. You see it in Belteshazzar. 
is honoring the god Bel. And the other names, there's some confusion exactly on what the names mean, but they're clearly honoring the Babylonian gods. So the one narrative, the one story is, your god lost, my god won, come to the winning side. And you can see how easy that would have been to believe. If you buy into that whole paradigm of battles are where gods fight, and if your fight, if your god wins, yeah, I want to believe in the most powerful god, don't you? It would be very easy, I think, to believe that the verdict of the battle proves God's power. But in verse 2, we are met very starkly with the other story. Verse 2, and we can't read this as just typical history. I'll read it again just to remind you and then see what's really going on. In the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. That verse is very confusing to read it under the paradigm of the ancient world. It doesn't make any sense. Because how can the Lord, how can one God be in charge of giving himself over to the other God? The God who won is the one who's supposed to be in charge. So how can the Lord, there's immediate tension in verse 2. Because how can the Lord, what we would say is Yahweh, the one true living God, how can he be in charge of giving over items from his temple to Babylon. It doesn't make sense on the paradigm that battles prove who is God, who's more powerful. So there must be some other paradigm. There must be some other paradigm than worldly success proves the truth of your God. And verse 2 is, is inserted in there as as Irony, maybe, as a kind of subversive, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's doing something, but he's really not. He's really not the one in charge. Think about that. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had just besieged Jerusalem. And here in verse 2, we see, you think you are so powerful, but you're not. God is using you, at the end of the day, to punish Israel. And that comes out later in the book of Daniel and lots of other places in the Old Testament where Israel is being, as they were promised, when they enter the promised land, they were promised, you will receive curses, you will be treated as Gentile nation if you don't follow me. And they are. And so we have this immediate... uh, competition between stories, what is really going on, what is true reality. There is clearly a catastrophe outwardly, but it's a cat, it, it's catastrophe but. It's catastrophe but. So they're being led out back to Shinar. Shinar is interesting. Shinar is not really mentioned much in the Bible, except 
at the Tower of Babel. So it seems like the author's reminding us they're going back to a place where ambition and pride is valued and not the one true and living God. Remember, Israel as a nation and as a place was supposed to be heaven on earth. And they are being taken away from heaven on earth into exile. They are being taken back out once again from Eden. And I want us to, secondly, just take stock in what that should mean. Because the New Testament picks up on this major idea of exile over and over to say we too are in exile. So take stock, face the facts that we are in exile. And I want to take a quick kind of break out of Daniel to help us understand that and and so that we can properly read uh, Daniel. Jesus himself is clearly almost redoing what Israel was supposed to do. Jesus, born in Israel, but then has this, as a baby, right, he comes out, goes to Egypt and then has to come out of Egypt, just like Israel. When he's talking on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, we are told in the Gospel of Luke that he is talking about his, quote, exodus, his departure. And there are aspects of the enti- all four Gospels where he is depicted as the new Israel going through a new exodus. He is the final Passover lamb because the first Israel had failed. And once Jesus comes, it's a celebration because finally the king of David is going to bring them out of exile. And these promises that the prophets start prophesying about before Jesus, that there's got to be a new exodus because the first one didn't work. That may kind of sound blasphemous, but it didn't work fully. We needed a better one, a second one. And that's what the prophets start prophesying about. Comfort, comfort you, my people, Isaiah 40 says. Your punishment has been paid. There's one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. This is John the Baptist saying, Jesus has come. He is the Lord bringing your people out of exile. So Jesus kind of redoes and improves on what Israel has done. And so we get the benefits of that. But we are in exile until we are fully united with Jesus. We're going to come back to that tension, but you see the tension everywhere throughout the New Testament. Paul calls us citizens of heaven, but we are waiting for the Lord to return. James uh, addresses his entire letter to the dispersion, to those who are in the diaspora, which we think of diaspora, we think of maybe a Jewish diaspora or Jews outside of Israel or an African diaspora or Africans outside of Africa. He's talking to the dispersion because we are the diaspora of heaven, if you will. Peter addresses his letter to elect exiles. Elect exiles. 
and sojourners. And so why is this important that we realize we are living in exile? Well, it's important because it's really going to help us understand Daniel. It's important because we're going to see what is a proper response when you live in exile. It's important because it's going to end up transforming our expectations of the world, of what we should expect from it, what we should expect from ourselves, and what we should expect before Christ's return. But as we're reading Daniel, just want to make a note, it's not always as simple as Daniel did this, be like Daniel. Daniel did this, be like Daniel. We may get there sometimes, but we have to read it first as Christ is the better Daniel. Christ is the one who went into exile for us, refused to compromise, and, and, and stood up to the kingdoms of this world. So we may then get to be like Daniel, but it's only in this greater context of be like Daniel in Christ. And and I'm going to unpack that some more, but I just want us to beware of some of these issues as we read Daniel. All right, so take stock. We're facing the fact. We're trying to take a side to realize that it is really the Lord who is in charge, not whatever Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is doing or whatever Nebuchadnezzar that you have in your life but I want to take caution as well because there is always a danger of being in exile. There's always a danger of being in exile, and the one we're going to look at most right now is simple, total assimilation. Simple and total assimilation. And this is very important for Christians to understand because Christianity, as far as I know, is unique among world religions in that It has thrived throughout its history in lots of different cultures. And there are fascinating studies about this, of how it travels throughout the world and takes root in different cultures. Starts in Jerusalem, starts in the Near East, travels to Africa, travels to Europe, travels to the Far East, it's in India by the end of the first century. And it takes root in all sorts of different cultures. Unlike every other major religion, which has to bring its culture with it. And so you could say that Christianity is the most uh, uh, flexible, but it's also the most vulnerable. It's also the most vulnerable because it's going to be too easy to become just like your neighbor. If you have to wear a certain dress, and eat a certain food, it's going to be harder for you to assimilate and look like the rest of the world. But if Jesus has left up to us, I don't know of Christian food. Jewish food is amazing. But it's easier to almost stay in your own isolated community if you have Jewish food or an Islamic way to dress or whatever. So we need to be aware of the danger of being in exile, the danger of assimilating. And here we see in the book of Daniel, uh, there's, there is going to be a, the sort of opposite danger of just totally isolating yourself and doing the Amish thing and just not even engaging the world at all. We're not going to talk about that today. 
And I don't think that's a huge danger for us, honestly. I think this is the biggest danger for us, assimilation. We can assimilate by simply submitting to the majority culture, just buying into the paradigm. Yeah, good job, Babylon. You won, we lost, show me how it works. And we can do that in our own world as well, right? You simply buy into the fact that success, however the world defines it, proves truth, proves value, proves what we should prioritize, and I want to be a part of the empire that's going to win, and so I'm going to submit to that world. It's hard to do that consciously and remain a Christian, and so the danger for us is to do that unconsciously. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is to assimilate without knowing it. You can assimilate and say, all right, forget Christianity because obviously the world is winning and I'm going I'm to pursue that. But it's a lot sneakier of Satan to try to get us to assimilate without knowing it. And it's far more dangerous for us. And it's interesting, if you've ever lived or traveled in a foreign country, it can be very, very helpful because then you start to see what is culture and what is not. It starts to relativize what you thought was normal. Just like a lot of us are, are learning in America, whiteness, too, is a culture. It's not the norm from which all other cultures differ. It, too, is a culture. And if you travel in other in other countries, you realize, oh, people don't always, when they greet each other, they don't always greet themselves by, hey, what do you do, for instance? What are ways that we can get assimilated into our culture without even knowing it? I happened to just watch uh, this new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and all you teenagers, please watch this. Please watch this. Don't watch it with your parents because that could be ugly. But I commend to you this Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. I watched it and was frightened, terrified, because it exposes uh, what is going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain of the, the social media empires. And it has folks who literally were high up in uh, in big tech, who were designing Instagram features, Facebook features, uh, Snapchat features, who were designing them to be addictive and to manipulate your behavior. And they were literally talking about how they would do that. Then they would go home, they would leave work, they would go home and realize they can't get out of the addiction either. It's become this, like, system, they don't know who to blame. You can't just say Mark Zuckerberg is to blame. It's a whole system that they've become addicted to, and it's manipulating their behavior. It's created consumers to be a product to advertise. All right, sorry. I didn't mean to say all that. It's, it's scary. And they talked also about they didn't want a major change. They're not trying to get you to change your whole life overnight. They're getting you to change one little behavior little by little by little. Slow changes over time. Which is amazing because just having preached Hebrews, that's the danger in Hebrews. He's worried about slow drift. So what 
is your, where are you vulnerable in a slow drift over time to become just like the world, to submit to the empire? Where are we most likely to forget that we are in exile? To forget, remember Psalm 137, how could I sing the Lord's song away from Jerusalem? This sense of weeping and lamenting. How tragic it would be for us to forget that we are in exile. Surely COVID should remind us that something is gravely wrong here. That this is not our home. That we should not just fold to the world around us. Are you, where, so where are you vulnerable? Is it social media in the way that it defines success and popularity? Is it professionally, is it? how your values are defined, the pressures of your job, is it status and privilege, is it success, defining your own personal success, defining our church's success, how do we define our church's success? Is it just by numbers or is it just by popularity, trying to get into the news, I want us to try to do real hard work and ask, where do we need to face the fact that we have forgotten we are in exile? That we have forgotten that Jesus reigns in heaven and our desire is that that would come more to more to earth, but it hasn't yet. It hasn't yet. There are so many ways, I think, that we can let the world define what success is. The easy one is, or the, the easy sort of trio, money, sex, and power. It's amazing how that is automatically defined as success. The example that often comes to my mind is, why do newscasters or weather folks have to be beautiful? That makes no sense. They're reading off a teleprompter. It doesn't make them better readers if they are attractive. Why would that be part of defining a successful, a person who is good at understanding the political climate? Well, to remember that we are in exile, is also to remember what we started with in verse 2, that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. So the last point is to take heart. There is good news in the fact that we are in exile. To know that we are in exile is to know that God has put us there. And that is to know that God is the one Lord true living God, the one who is more powerful than any other emperor and any other king. It is incredibly good news. But you can imagine how hard 
Would it, be, would it be for Daniel to believe that this was the case? How, because he's not only, it's not only a strong faith in Yahweh, he is rebuking the entire overarching paradigm of how you look at the world. Of how you look at the world. Because otherwise, it's simple to believe that battles define truth and who is God. And he's saying, not only do I believe in Yahweh, I don't believe in your whole overarching system. Your whole lookout, outlook of the world is wrong. That's what it means to believe that God has put you into exile. Exile does not prove that God is lost, that Yahweh has lost, that the Lord Jesus Christ is somehow in hiding and he has forgotten us. That is not what it proves. Hallelujah. That is not what it proves. And so this has hundreds of implications, doesn't it? Hundreds of ways to apply this. I mentioned expectations a little bit earlier. Of course there's going to be a spiritual battle. We should expect it. In 1 Peter, in another part that we didn't read, he talks about when he says, you, you are sojourners and exiles, passions are waging war against your flesh. Of course. You're in exile. What do you expect? You're a sojourner in a foreign land. What do you expect? You're not going to feel at home. So then that really prepares us when it comes, doesn't it? It won't catch us off guard. There can't be a surprise attack. Because we already should expect an attack. Notice how it should really empower us to handle disappointment and grief and despair. Again, Psalm 137. They were weeping and lamenting because they couldn't sing what they thought they could only sing in the promised land. There's a reason Jesus in the Beatitudes, when he's described, what is it like to be a disciple? He says, blessed are those who mourn. And maybe that's the strangest ones of that list. We're not quite sure what to do with it. Why should, why should we want to mourn? Well, I heard a story of... Jerry, could you hand me my water bottle in my bag? Thank you. I heard a story of a... Uh, theology professor who uh, was asked by, I think it was like his therapist or counselor, what are, you, what are you really after? What's your main goal in life? What are you trying to accomplish? And he was, he was a pretty seasoned theology professor. Uh, excuse me. And he said, I want to write a definitive systematic theology. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Cool. That would be good if you did that be helpful. But maybe your goal should be to weep. To learn to weep more. And the professor kind of looked at him. You know that Jesus, after Lazarus died, 
Jesus wept. And just to say those two words really doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's Jesus. His name itself means God saves. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus. He knows he's going to go on and be crucified and die, but then be raised and be the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's ascended on power, but he wept. And then he's approaching Jerusalem, and he's weeping over Jerusalem. And so you have these stories of church fathers saying, if you want to be a Christian, you need to learn how to weep. How to mourn over your sin. I'm not sure how to learn how to do that. There was a, a poem I, I had on the slide. I didn't get it into the bulletin in time, but Jane had mentioned a few weeks back on our Wednesday night's prayer services, our compliments, this poem, and it's said in the words of the woman who wept at Jesus' feet and, and is like cleaning his, his feet with her tears. And it says, In your deep floods drown all my faults and fears, nor let his eyes see sin, but through my tears. She didn't want Jesus to see her sin. This is an amazing posture I think we can have. To not want God to see our sin, but through our tears. Meaning, we should learn to weep over our sin and over the sin of the world. And if we're not weeping, we're not really paying attention. If we're not mourning, we're not receiving that word of the Beatitudes from Jesus. What does this have to do with exile? Because you weep when you are in exile. You mourn and lament when you are in exile. And you may think, I did not come to church to learn how to cry. I cry enough already. My life is terrible. I'm already weeping at night. Why is this God, why is this God telling me I need to learn to weep? Well, for one, it's because this is the way that Christianity is relevant. This is the way that Christianity is real. Not by being a huge, getting an emotional high and always being happy-go-lucky. That's fake. It's superficial and it's not scripture. I'm reminded by this description of Christianity. He said, it's as if we believe in a God without wrath, bringing humanity without sin to a kingdom without judgment by a Christ without a cross. It's just, that's just not the Christianity you're going to get at this church. And it's not the Christianity in Scripture. And that is irrelevant. It is irrelevant to your life, whether you know it or not, because it is irrelevant. It is not power, it is powerless in the face of sin. Powerless in the face of sin. Because when we really take stock of what is happening, we really take stock of what Jesus had to do, we will weep. 
we will see what happened on the cross. But it is a weeping like Jesus. First Thessalonians talks about grieving, but not grieving as those who don't have hope. And that's why I think that phrase from 1 Peter is so helpful, elect exiles. We're not just exiles lost. We're not just exiles without an anchor. We're not exiles, God forbid, forgetting our true homeland. That's like a double tragedy. We are elect exiles. Don't get caught up on predestination. Elect is that biblical word that means you are secure, you are held, you are chosen. You can weep like Jesus, but we need both of those. We need both of those. Ryle says that a Christian is known by an inner contradiction, inner warfare and inner peace. We have both of those in this time. We can look just like at the end of the story of Joseph. There's a lot of similarities between Joseph and Daniel. And Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We are in the midst of exile, in the midst of sin. But we know where the story goes because we're already connected to the one who is out of exile. We're already united to the one who has defeated the power of sin and death and brought us through the second better and perfect exodus by his blood out of sin and death. He is our forerunner. In the passage that we heard read in 1 Peter, it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is a different sort of exile. And so again, be like Daniel doesn't even fit here either. We don't have to be like Daniel, because it's a different sort of exile. He resolved, in verse 8, he resolved to not defile himself. It's interesting that that's the same word, resolve, is a, a translation, but it's the same word from verse 7, where it talked about the chief eunuch giving names, changing their names. Daniel took within his heart, decided within his heart, to not defile himself. He's like responding to this effort of dominance by the Babylonians. His own response is to say, no, no, I'm not going to submit. Everything around me, looks, it looks like Yahweh has lost. And it looks like the sensical thing is to take the things out of the temple of Jerusalem and put them in the real temple in Babylon. But I resolve not to do that. Even though I know I'm in exile, even though I'm going to weep, even though he's going to experience success and failure, flourishing and terrible suffering, he is not going to forget that he is in exile. And so do you know that you are in exile? It is true that all of humanity, Christians and non-Christians, you could say, are in exile. But the tragic thing of those who don't know Christ is that 
they don't even realize it. And if you don't realize it, you are going to be taken along by an empire that is going to eat you alive. Maybe the symptom is going to be social media. Maybe it's going to be something else. But you are going to be conquered and defeated by an empire, and you don't even realize there's a battle. But we, those who are in Christ, we know that there is a battle. We know that we are in exile, and we can rejoice. We can rejoice. We get tastes. We get tastes of heaven in Christ. We're not lost. We're not wandering in the wilderness, wondering where are we going to go. We're secure. We're held We can rejoice, and therefore we can face any Nebuchadnezzar in our life that tries to dominate us. Any kind of empire that tries to get us slowly, day by day, away from God, away from the Savior of our souls, the one who sustains and provides all things for us. He's the one who saves us. Forget not that you are in exile. Let that change your expectations, and trust the Savior of your souls. Amen. God, we pray that you would open our hearts to learn and to know what it means that we are blessed when we mourn over our sin, when we weep over the fact that we are far from you, that we rebel against you day in and day out. Lord, and itself draw us to You that we would know the power of Your forgiveness. Use sin and the empire, the, the rival powers, Lord, against their own intent to show us Your power and Your grace that we would trust You fearlessly in the midst of our exile. We pray in Jesus' name that can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord.